If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 16 and go through chapter 4, verse 1. And as you turn there, let me just take a moment to feel like I didn't connect exactly. I gave you the, the fun part of, of Numbers chapter 19, but I didn't tell you what it meant. Numbers 19, and the red heifer burned outside the camp, and all who touch it and do the work of burning and sacrificing are unclean, but the ones who are touched by the death of it that are unclean are made clean. And maybe you already know what I'm going to say, but that's our Lord Jesus. All who crucified Him are guilty for the crucifixion. They're guilty of sin. They are made unclean by it. But it is that very death, that very sacrifice, that is the cleanness of all those who are unclean. And so the heifer rightly points to our Lord who fulfills all those things that are written in the law. That said, let's turn to Isaiah and hear him speak of this glorious Lord that we see in the law as he beholds him, not only in the law, but in that vision from above and then speaks this prophecy. Verse 16, The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn, empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread, and we will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name, and take away our reproach. The nation as a woman. The nation as a woman. It is a common allegory throughout history. You can see it. In many nations and in many stories, America, we do it today. You can think of the Statue of Liberty as the, the, the symbol of our nation standing there at the harbor in New York City. Or maybe even it's that woman with the blindfold and holding the scales, justice is blind. Or as it has been in the past, that woman during the World War II that has, she's flexing her bicep with the bandana on her head and saying, we can do it. Whatever it is, it's America doing this thing that is done so often. An article from New York History Society says, Long before Uncle Sam first appeared, artists drew upon a visual tradition that stretched back centuries to depict America as a woman. It is a regular occurrence not only in the history of the world, but in Scripture itself. The people of God, again and again, are described as a woman, holy men, moved by God, are led to refer to Israel by female pronouns and to view her as feminine. So it is not surprising that Isaiah would do the same here, moved by God, spoken to by God to speak His Word and take up this image of a woman to describe what God is about to do to His people who have been acting in this particular way. 
It is an image of a proud and self-assured woman or women whom God deeply humbles. In this sense, it is a judgment upon the nation's pride in all of its forms, religious, political, militaristic, and on it could go. But it is not just that. The humbling of the people is itself preparatory. It is propydeutic, to use a big multi-syllable word, a teaching before the teaching comes, which is necessary for the reception of, for them to even begin to learn what salvation is for them. They have to have this first. It is with this in mind that we can see how this word to Israel is a word not only to them, but to, to every man. It's a word to us here tonight. The judgment upon this one nation is a judgment upon every nation. The judgment upon the pride of Israel is a judgment upon all pride, even yours and mine. This teaching that is before the teaching is for us. Judgment may begin at the house of God, but it most certainly does not end there. It reaches to the very extent of the earth. The preparatory work is not only for the sons of Jacob, it is for all the sons of Adam. He would humble all in order that he might have mercy upon all and that those who would receive the mercy might understand and know their need of it and so reach out for it. As the New Testament teaches, humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God and he he will lift you up. So let us behold verse 1 of this chapter, the salvation of God wrought in the humbling of the woman or the women. We see her here in three stages. Sometimes in the plural, sometimes in the singular, but always feminine. First, she is proud. And then her pride is turned to poverty. And then finally, we see her pleading. So three points, pride, poverty, and pleading. Three Ps. Eat your peas tonight. <laughs> that was my dad joke for the night. <laughs> First, her pride. She, this woman who's prideful, is an, an emblem of the nation. And she's described as haughty. She's puffed up. The daughters of Zion are haughty. They walk around with their head held high. I, I can't help but think of the women in Africa that wear those rings that stretch out of their neck so that they stand out and seem to think that they are beautiful. Her, her nose is pointed to the air, in, in the air. Everything about her gait and her stance communicates this pride. From her eyes to her feet, even the noise she makes as she walks communicates her pride and delight in herself. She is like the image of our modern runway model. She walks in a very particular way and does so knowing that all eyes are on her and that she is beautiful and everybody wants to be like her. You know what they are like. They walk in exaggerated ways. They are showy and their movement says that very thing, look at me. Mincing as they go. Tinkling with her feet. This is how God's all-seeing eyes see his nation in the way that they're living. They're like that. That woman. That strut that marks her gait like birds puffing out their chest and showing their feathers off. These women loved to be loved and adored. Israel thinks he is worthy. She is worthy 
of love. Like the Pharisees in the New Testament with their robes and long tassels and their phylacteries, loving to be seen in the marketplaces and called rabbi and given the best seats. See, they pile on a show and delight in their beauty. Beginning in verse 18, there's an extensive list of all the stuff that they wear, jewelry and accessories, all the things that would tinkle and shine. The accessories in themselves, they're not all bad things. Some are items that you could even find associated with the priesthood. And some are items associated with the plundering of Egypt. They're signs of God's faithfulness to Israel. He gives them the priesthood. He plundered Egypt and gave them gold. They have religious and political significance in that sense. The problem is not the things themselves. The problem is in what they are using those things for. They are using them to point to themselves, to bring attention to their nation as the nation. The display, they display it in their walk, in their attire, and they say boldly, we are children of Abraham. Look at us. They think that they are something when they in themselves are nothing. There's something that I think we are all continu continually tempted by if we're honest with ourselves. Everywhere we look, we're not only tempted in our own hearts, but we're called by our society to want others to want us and to like us and to see us. We're called to think continually, to think continually much of ourselves by advertisements and billboards and movies, to give all of our attention day after day and our energies to our own image. It's hard not to walk down any street of any given American city and not feel pulled in that direction to that way of life or to seek it in some way. It's profound when we would go to the beaches in California to feel it. It felt heavy to walk down the street. I need to be cool. I need to dress cool and talk cool and act cool. It is a reality that is as true of a high school student as it is of a Presbyterian minister. It is as true in ancient Israel as it is today. The symbols of coolness may change, but they are still that very thing, symbols of coolness. The world, the nation, your flesh, it calls you to pride, to this strutting and mincing and tinkling with your feet, to strut about and expect others to look and envy and think much of you. It's what the Bible calls the pride of life. First John, his epistle manifest in ancient Israel here in this picture of a woman and a warning to us. I have given a lot of thought this week about how I could give you an example of what this might look like in one of your lives, how you, you specifically experience uh, this, this temptation to pride, what it might be like to walk in any one of your pairs of shoes, but I figured that was more difficult than I could begin to do, and so I decided instead to tell you what it's like in my shoes. I have a degree on a piece of paper with Latin writing that I can't read, but it makes it seem that I have something fancy. I hang it on my wall. I button an iron sh ironed shirt every day, and well, most days, and put a tie on and make my way downtown, and I sit at a desk with big, thick, academic and smart-looking books with foreign languages that, that I can almost read pretty well most of the time. I pop in and out of a, a, a prestigious old building with a very high steeple that people stop on their vacations to take pictures of. I pop in and out freely and people see me do it in my tie, in my sport coat. My dress shoes sometimes click as I walk on the brick walkways in the squares. 
In such moments, I know what it is, feel, it is to feel like I'm important. People want to be like me. At least I think that. You know what it's like. <laughs> I guess nobody does. Y'all laugh, but you know what I'm talking about. You all feel that same thing. They, they, they want to be like me. But that thing that rises in your heart before the God of all the earth, really, that we would think such a thing, that we are that important, that people are going to pay attention to me, and that we actually want it and think that it's important. Who am I? What am I? I am nothing. Are any of those things really anything before the God of all the earth? My degree, my books, my clothes, my clicking shoes, all of it, it's nothing. It shall pass away. It can be gone in a moment, in an instant, and I have to stand before Him as I am. Not with those things that I think the world might envy, but with whatever really means anything before Him. The Lord will have nothing of such a spirit, right? He will deal with it in a spirit of burning and of judgment, Isaiah says. Bring the haughtiness of man to the dust of the earth. In a moment, He can turn it all, our highest pride, to the lowest poverty. He can take it away like that, and it's gone. Even if it's not death, by war, by famine, by some crazy earthquake that you didn't see coming, a tidal wave, it could all be gone. And that's our second point here, this woman's sudden poverty. Because they are haughty, verse 17, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts, their lifted up head, that was so haughty, is now the very thing that displays their shame. And all those clothes that they liked to have people look at and thought themselves beautified with are stripped away and they're left naked before everyone. It's the same act by which He took away the support and staff of bread at the beginning of this chapter. Only now it is described in that term of stripping away, taking away female finery and the flashy gewgaws and accessories and everything that they were wearing. The same act is given here, but it's just described differently. Notice that. Isaiah is repeating himself. He's already said all of this in some way before with the men, and now he's saying it in the image of women. God repeats himself. Do you know that? And he does it because he wants you to learn, and he's a good teacher. He says the same things to you again and again. Verse 18, And that day, it says, the Lord will take it away, everything. The full list of accessories from verse 18 to 23, there are 21 of them. Set three sevens will be gone, all of them. The Lord will take them away. And then in verse 24, he not only takes the things away, he replaces them with something else. Their beauty with signs of the most severe poverty you could imagine. No longer perfume, but rot. It's kind of gross. Which means decay in their bodies, their health. Instead of a belt, a rope, just a normal piece of rope, nothing special. Instead of a well-set hair, their hair is gone and they are bald, either shaved bald or because of disease or something, the hair is gone. And instead of a rich a robe, sackcloth, and instead of, be of beauty, it actually flips it, it says branding instead of beauty. 
She who is free and proud now looks a lot like a slave, bound, bald, and branded. The woman who rejoiced in her fine garments now mourns in the signs of mourning, sackcloth, and rope. All that she trusted in to glorify herself is taken away in a day. And it's not as though it's something that doesn't happen, hasn't happened in the history of Israel. If you're familiar with the first book of Samuel, this is what happens to the tabernacle at Shiloh at the beginning of that book. On one momentous day, the high priest Eli dies. His sons are killed. The ark is taken. The armed men are beaten. And the glory departs to the Philistines all in one day. And notice here, it is not just beauty either that he takes away. In verse 25, it's more. They, these women who represent the nation, are further bereaved of the hope of deliverance that they might still have in the men. We might be a mess, but the men will save us. But no, that's taken away. In verse 25, the men whom they could look for to help them are themselves struck down. And notice he speaks to them. He switches the pronouns. Instead of saying those women, he says, your, looking at them. Your men, your husbands, your sons, your brothers shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And then verse 26, and so her gates shall lament and mourn. The very entrance to the city, the gate that marked joy and the, the approach of times of worship and fellowship with God are now marked not by joy or rejoicing, but by sorrow and tears over all that has happened. In Jeremiah, the gate where the kings sit in one day are switched from kings of Israel to Babylonian generals. In one day, pride and strength replaced by weakness, weeping with the inescapable conclusion at the end of verse 25, empty. Empty she shall sit on the ground. She, this woman, these women who symbolize Israel, they are humbled to the dust. That's the picture here. And isn't that the very thing that does happen to Jerusalem in the history of Israel? In 721 B.C., the armies of Assyria surround the gates of Jerusalem and they threaten siege, but they don't quite do it that time. They're delivered. In 587 B.C., Babylon comes this time, and this time the walls are broken down and the city plundered and the people taken away into exile. And then, of course, in 70 A.D., it's Rome, and Rome does the same thing that Babylon did some 500, 600 years before. In a day, the sacrifice is gone. In a day, the temple plundered and raised, the city burnt, the people put to the edge of the sword, and the remnant taken away with ropes and branding. But these three days, notice, are three days and not the day. They merely pertain to the day. Rome, too, falls in a day, but even the fall of Rome, even filled with such imagery as this, is not in view here, but it pertains to it. All of my sources of pride and your sources of pride and security could be swept away in a moment. Everything that gives us reason to lift our heads can be eliminated in the twinkling of an eye. We could die suddenly. Some natural disaster could happen. It could happen in a day. But even that day would not be the day. It too merely pertains to that day. Isaiah has already introduced us to the day. In chapter 2, verse 12, 
The Lord, he says, has appointed a day against all that is proud and lofty. And then in verse 17 in chapter 2, And the haughtiness of men shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted on that day. See, that day. And he concludes this section of Scripture that we're looking at tonight with another reference to that day. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, you can see it there. It reads, And seven women, obviously continuing the feminine theme, shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread, and we will wear our own clothes, meager though they probably are at this point. Only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. See, that day is characterized by a great overturning, by the overthrow of the pride of women, and here by seven women at the end left pleading. It is a desperate pleading. And notice that we come from pride to poverty and now pleading. Desperate pleading. They have been brought very low, empty, on the ground, don't care to get, that they're soiling themselves. Bereaved of sons and husbands, they are widowed, childless. It is a dark day indeed. It is what we, you and I, might feel like if we were suddenly stripped of everything unexpectedly. If we were humbled in an instant of all that we still hold on to. It, it must be what the people of Israel experienced when they were sieged those Three different times. It is what Romans knew when the, the, the hordes of the north came storming down the gates of the city and broke through the walls. The prophet pictures it here as seven women left with only one man. It is a sign of judgment that has fallen on the nation. And they willingly, they willingly give up all respectability at this point. All propriety, all decorum, all hopes of being beautiful are long gone at this point. They relinquish even their own rights. There is no expectation that the man will be the breadwinner here. He is not going to give a covering to them. They will bring their own sackcloth and crumbs. Only, they say, pleading, let us be called by Your name. Take away our reproach. It is a picture of judgment finishing its work. But it is more. It is more. The hope of every Israelite woman left bound up in one man. One man to bring about the next generation. One man through whom the seed could come. One man in whom the promise might live and that they might still bear sons in Israel. We read something very similar to this in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. It says, In those days, instead of that day, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of a robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. You see, in our extremity, when we are brought low, maybe we don't lose everything, but we know what it is to be humbled. If you haven't, one day you will. We will, in that moment, in that day, reach out for help from someone. We will do whatever we can to find help and be lifted up. Whatever is left to us. And when we do so, what, who are you and I reaching for? Who is the man to whom we look on that day when we are humbled? In that day, we, will we hold out on our pride and our own sense of beauty and trust in man whose 
in whose nostrils is breath? Or will we enter into that company who lays hold of the only thing left to sinful men in a desperate strait of the days of judgment? To whom, to whom, brothers and sisters, will you plead on that day? For God would humble you and bring you to the valley of judgment to make of that place a door of hope. We can just pull at the string of that day in, in Isaiah and just listen to the ways that this day is described. Verse 29 of chapter 25. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. Learn from that. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And then chapter 28, verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the leftovers of the siege, the remnant. No longer beauty that they hold, but God Himself, the beauty. Chapter 29, verse 18. In that day, out of their gloom and darkness, a place of humility and destruction, the eyes of the blind shall see. 52, verse 6. My people shall know My name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. See, He, our God, has made Himself available. Here I am. Here I am in the very place of judgment to any and all who will reach out pleadingly to Him. In your place of poverty, will you reach to Him for riches? In your place of lacking everything else, will you come to Him and receive whatever He wants? You remember the Syrophoenician woman? She comes to Jesus and He says, the bread is for the children. And she says, that's fine. I don't need the bread. I will take whatever you give me because the dogs themselves will eat the crumbs. She's willing to be called a dog as long as He would minister to her. See, these women picture something like that. Us brought very, very low. Made empty as empty can be and longing for one thing and one thing only. And what is that one thing? Your name. Your name on me. Put it on me and give it to me. Let me be called by your name. And take away the reproach. Lift it up and cast it afar from me as the east is from the west. I'll do everything else. That's all I want from you. Just give me that. How many times has that happened in Jesus' life? The woman with 12 years of blood being issued from her body and she breaks through the crowd just to touch the hem of His garment because He can save. Or the, the blind man on the side of the road who cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me! Have mercy on me! And they try to quiet Him, but He won't stop. Son of David, have mercy on me! He will have the one thing that only this man can provide. Jesus, ready and willing to save any and all who are brought low, brought low in sackcloth and baldness and branding, so that He, as Isaiah will write later, can turn your mourning into rejoicing, your ashes into beauty. If you don't believe me, ask the thief on the cross. The thief whose pleading was answered on that day with the promise of great joy and even paradise. You see, on that day, He brings your pride into a place of poverty that you might learn to plead with Him to give you His name and take away your reproach. As the next verse says, and in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we... <clears throat>
We're thankful that you sovereignly work in our lives to bring us to the place where we want only you. And Lord, if there are any in here that have not known that place, may you bring them there that they might lay hold of you and be called children of that day. And so walk in the light of that day until the dawning of the great day when all these things shall be revealed to every eye. For your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.